Well, certainly when it comes to <coughs> the issue of Memorial Day, there should be no one better prepared to celebrate that than Christians, because every Lord's Day when we gather, it is a Memorial Day of sorts for us to remember the sacrifice of Christ. And um, in a way, that's, it's kind of strange to say Happy Memorial Day, you know, um, but we, we, we do have a freedom to pursue, uh, to pursue the pursuit of happiness uh, because of the sacrifice that people have made. And while this is not Veterans Day, it would be uh, totally appropriate for us to say a word of thank you to those who have served as well as to those who have paid the ultimate price. Um, again, Christians, Christians this, this is no surprise for us to remember, even in the institution of uh, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, as oft as you eat or drink, you are to remember and to proclaim the Lord's sacrifice until he comes. So uh, would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin our service here this morning? Father, we thank you for this, uh, this weekend uh, that causes us to not just look at current and contemporary blessings, but to look at what those historical precedents are that have provided the freedoms that we so richly enjoy. As we fire up our barbecue grills and um, show off our yard work and maybe even take a boat out on the lake, Father, these are things that we enjoy because we live in a nation that has been incredibly blessed. And uh, not because there's anything special about who we are, but I think in issues related to our history, we have, we have sought you and your blessings, and you have given them to us. Father, my biggest prayer for our country, and in light of the sacrifice that so many have made for their freedom, is that we not become like the children of Egypt who became so fat on your blessings that they for forgot who you were. Father, help us not to overestimate the gift uh, over the giver. And we pray today that while we rightly memorialize those who have paid the ultimate price, that you help us to remember today uh, that no one has paid a debt greater than what you have paid for us in Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to see him lifted high in the scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things that is really sweet about knowing the Lord is that he is a full-service Savior. Now, that doesn't, if you're under 50, that doesn't make, uh, uh, that, that terminology doesn't matter to you at all. Because if you're under 50, you have no clue what a full-service gas station is. The word full-service and gas station probably never been used in a sentence before in your, your language. Um, are there any full-service gas stations that exist today. We had somebody in the first service that went to one in New Jersey. Here? Oregon? Wow, okay. Some, somebody got something right on the West Coast, so that's a good thing. But a full-service gas station, this is an amazing thing. And granted, listen, cars are different nowadays than they were 50 years ago, but a full-service gas station, they got this little, little black um, I don't even want you to call it tube that lays across the lane that you pull in. And when you pull in, ding, ding, it rings and it lets all the, the, the folks that are going to serve you, it lets them know a new car just pulled in and they come running out, a whole crew of them. It, it feels like you're a NASCAR race, race driver. You're like, all right, get me new tires. So they check your oil, they check your water, they, they wash your, their, your windshield, they pump your gas for you. You give them the cash or the credit card they pay. You don't even have to get out of the car. It was pretty much let us do everything for you. That was what full service was. I don't even think we have a conception of that kind of service anymore. I mean, now you go to Walmart 
And, and besides the fact that there's never enough cashiers there, I mean, it seems like all of the, all of the cash registers are self-service because you're sitting there ringing the bell for the cashier to come back to her station. Now they have self-service checkout. So like you get to use the little laser gun, which is the coolest thing in the world. You get to use it, doo-doo, you know, you get to key in your produce code, do all that kind of stuff. Or when it comes to self-service, you want to hear the ultimate of self-service, and I won't, I won't call out people who use this wonderful, marvelous service that Walmart has created. Now, it's not that you don't have to deal with people or the people of Walmart when you go in the store. Now, you can pull up into a particular parking spot, have ordered your groceries online, and not have to deal with any of that junk. They bring it out to you. you got to deal with one person, and they put it in your car. That's maybe a little bit of full service, I guess, in a different way. And in the same sense, Jesus serves us, and this is what is so sweet, as a full-service Savior. And I think, I think the motive behind kind of emphasizing this is I think that certainly non-Christians, but I fear Christians have a very flat Stanley kind of approach to Jesus, a very one-dimensional picture of Jesus. So Jesus gets up in the morning, and, you know, he, he spends about an hour in prayer, and then he spends about an hour in Bible study. And then um, what else does Jesus do throughout the day? Because, like, Jesus can't do normal stuff. He's got to, you know, I guess he goes back to prayer and Bible study, and he's in this endless cycle of prayer and Bible study all day, which prayer and Bible study is a good thing. But we have this one-dimensional study that Jesus is just, he'd be kind of really boring to hang around. There'd be no vitality to what he does. And yet when we look at how Jesus intends to serve us, Jesus doesn't just give us his, his life, he gives us himself. And for every single one of our families here today, if you can understand the difference between those two things, Jesus giving his life, beautiful, wonderful, it's what makes us Christians. But that's not all he gave us. He gives us himself, which is even more than a one-time offering. He gives a relationship with him. I think if we can understand the difference between Jesus, dare I even say, merely giving us his life, as opposed to completely giving us himself. It radicalizes and changes everything about what we believe. So three simple points today pulled from a marvelous passage of Scripture. Today on Memorial Day, and this was not planned, um, we, we take the Lord's Supper next week, and so we, we gerrymandered our topics so that we could do I am the bread of life when we take the Lord's Supper. But uh, that, was, that was our plan, our human engineering. This, on Memorial Day, we get to talk about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Like, that's a really happy accident. There, there is nothing better than talking about on the day that we memorialize people who gave their lives to, to talk about the one who gives us life. That's, that's awesome. That's great. But as we go into this story of Jesus proclaiming that he is the, the resurrection and the life, we see three things that, that picture for us the full service saviorhood of who Jesus is. We'll begin uh, by kind of looking at some background information. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And here's the point. I'll give you the point, and then we'll walk through it and prove it. We can celebrate friendship with Jesus, and we can appreciate who He is relationally. We can, we, we can have a friendship with Jesus and appreciate what He does for us relationally. Now listen, John, uh, John 15, 15. Jesus is having a, an intimate conversation with his disciples, and he says, hey, listen, I don't call you servants anymore. I don't call you slaves, 
Because slaves just do what they're told. They don't understand necessarily what's going on. They just obey. But I call you my friends. And the truth is, Jesus proves his friendship all throughout the scriptures. Uh, The very first time we see Jesus as an adult, he's at a social gathering. He's at a wedding. And and he is the, uh, in, in one sense, maybe the literal hit of the party. I mean, Jesus saves the day. Jesus is there as a participant, and he ends up being the hero in a very kind of behind-the-scenes way that is, that is really cool. Um, so he calls people his friends, and then he proves it. Look with me at, at uh, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, which was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, you need to understand. Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. I don't know what Mary did in John 11 to not get her name included right there because they named Martha, they named Lazarus. She's just the sister. But Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the, um, uh, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you there. And are you going there again? Verses 11 through 16. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, "Uh, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll, he'll recover. Why can't his sisters wake him up? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that they that he meant that he was taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas Didymus, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we can die with him. Interesting passage uh, leading up to one of Jesus' greatest miracles, most um, kind of awe-worthy miracles. And yet behind this whole situation is is Jesus participating in life, not just a wedding in John chapter 2, but here in John chapter 11, a funeral. Jesus rejoices with those who rejoice and weaves with those who weep. Jesus got criticized all the time. He got criticized for hanging out with wealthy people. Oh, he hangs out with gluttons, people who enjoy the finer things in life. And then if he goes to the opposite end of the spectrum, oh, he hangs out with tax gatherers and sinners and Why would he be eating with that person if he knew what their reputation was? Jesus hung out with all kinds of people. He was no respecter of position in life. And he participates fully in life. All of Jesus' life was devoted to God, not just the 20 minutes that he was reading his Bible. He found a way to take God with him everywhere that he went, even to these parties with notorious gluttons, sinners, and tax collectors. And yet here we find that he has a very special relationship. He has a very special uh, uh, history with this family. They are dear friends of his. In verses 3 and 5, when the sisters send word to Jesus, uh, they don't say, Lazarus is sick. They say, the one that you love. 
maybe a good way to see that is Jesus, one of your nearest and dearest, one of your, your besties. Do you like to think of Jesus having a best friend? Listen, everybody needs encouragement, right? Lazarus was perhaps one of his closest friends. There's nothing wrong with that, as long as Jesus is not discriminating against other people, which he doesn't do. There's a very special relationship here. There's a special relationship. There's a special history with the sisters. It says that, hey, by the way, this Mary and Martha, Mary is the one who washed Jesus' feet with her hair after pouring this perfume, this ointment on it. Here's something that's fantastic. Okay, just when we talk about how the Spirit inspires the Scripture and God superintends and preserves it, where does this episode happen that Mary washes Jesus' feet? We're in John chapter 11, and John doesn't tell the story until John chapter 12. So he is referring to something that he knows historically has happened as if it has already happened, yet for those of us who are reading John's gospel, we don't find out about it until John chapter 12. And it just shows that, you know, there's this, this body of knowledge. And John's like, oh, okay, first century people, you know the story. I mean, it's Mary and Martha, for Pete's sake. He washes their feet, but we're going, no, just reading through John's gospel. We're not aware of that quite, quite yet. <clears throat> not only are these dear friends, but there's, there's much mention that is made of the destination. The destination, Bethany, is not a neutral location. There, there is no need for John to notate for, for people who are geographically interested, that Bethany happens to be two miles from Jerusalem. However, you kind of pick up when Jesus is having the conversation with the disciples that there's bad news in Bethany. Uh, because of its proximity to Jerusalem, uh, the Jews had been seeking to kill Jesus. And they're like, all right, so we just got here to get away from the bad guys, and you want to go back to kind of where the bad guys are. As a matter of fact, did you catch Thomas's really optimistic statement in verse 16? He, he's the Eeyore of the bunch. He's like, okay, let's go with him so we can all die with him. This is going to be bad. You're like, way to go, Thomas. So optimistic. There is, this, there is this sense of danger, and I want you to see this, okay? This is a really, this is a really important issue when it comes to our relationships because uh, we're in a day where we have so many virtual relationships, um, but we don't have real friendships. We think we can text with someone, but then we can't relate to someone. And I want you to see something really important here. When it comes to Jesus' relationship, we've already established a special relationship with Lazarus. Lazarus might be Jesus' best friend. Special relationship with these women. Um, a dangerous destination for Jesus. And yet Jesus goes knowing that literally his neck could be on the line. Why? Because you sacrifice for people that you care for. Let me just suggest, and this is going to be a terrible test, take your 5,000 Facebook friends and see how many of them will sacrifice for you. And by the time you do that little bit of math, some of my Facebook friends minus people that would actually sacrifice anything for me, uh, you come down to a really small number of people who are actually truly your friends. Because I'm willing to bet you that 4,980 of your Facebook friends aren't going to do anything that's inconvenient. As a matter of fact, the only way they'll relate to you is asynchronously through, a, uh, through social media. They're not going to be there to help you change your tire, give you a ride to the doctor, do any of that kind of stuff. So Jesus knows there's danger, and he says, guys, let's go. Lazarus and his sisters need us. What, what a beautiful picture uh, of a Lord who cares for us relationally. There's a certain sovereignty yet, though, though too. Jesus delays 
And here's the thing that's interesting. No social media, no text messaging, no email, no postal system. Now, there was a postal system, but not like today. Like you could go to like the city hall and, and see if they, you know, maybe there was some kind of postage fee, but it didn't come to your house, not the same way that it did today. Jesus gets the message. So Mary and Martha send the message. They got to go find Jesus, like a literal messenger. And, and I, I think by the time Jesus gets the message, hey, the one that you love is ill, Lazarus is already dead. As we try to put the chronology together, we know that he's been dead four days by the time Jesus gets there. Um, he delays two days. There's maybe a day's journey. By the time the message is sent, it's already old news. And here's what's amazing. Jesus demonstrates something of his supernatural nature because he only gets one message. Hey, the one that you love is sick. And Jesus starts off, he says, this death is not the, the, the sickness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. Lazarus is falling asleep. We're going to go wake him up. Disciples don't get it. So Jesus has to go, all right, hey, guys, listen, I ain't playing anymore. Lazarus is dead. How do you know that? Because like the snail mail that he got said, hey, the one that you love is ill. Jesus had supernatural knowledge because he was, he was God, and yet he delays. And I think that there's some important stuff here in the delay because there was a, there was a popular superstition just like we have popular superstitions in our day. Popular superstition is if you die, especially if you're a kid, if a kid dies, they become an angel when they die. Like, that's really sentimental and sweet. It's not biblical. Not one shred of biblical evidence related to that. Um, and so in their day, they believed that when you died, your soul kind of had this out-of-body experience. It would hover around your body for about three days. And there was a chance for medicine or for miracle to take place. Now, after, after three days, nothing's going to help. As a matter of fact, you'll see very clearly that even people that have faith think, nope, it's been four days. If it was three days, might have been some hope. It's four days. There's none. And so Jesus waits, I think, sovereignly to demonstrate an even greater miracle by bringing a four-day dead person back to life. Because that's a lot greater than bringing a three-day old person back to life. Uh, it's interesting. We are told that because of its proximity to uh, Jerusalem, that many Jews from Jerusalem come and they comfort uh, Mary and Martha in the death of their brother. This implies some social standing. We already know from John chapter 12, when Mary washes Jesus's feet and wipes it with her hair, Judas gets really mad because that was expensive perfume. He's like, hey man, you know, she could have donated that to the cause, you know. And of course, Judas was the guy that kind of kept the treasury, so he was real interested in finances. We don't know exactly what all happened there. Would have loved to have seen an audit of Judas's bookkeeping just to make sure everything was on the up and up. But he's really mad. And so you got many Jews coming to them. We know that they, she washes his feet with expensive perfume. Uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were probably of a certain social standing where they were wealthy. Obviously, have a home that can entertain many people. They can buy expensive perfume. And it might be that their relationship with Jesus and his disciples was that they were the benefactors. We, don't, we know that Jesus learned to trade. We have no evidence during Jesus' earthly ministry that he practiced his skill of carpentry. He was an itinerant preacher. And maybe the way that he uh, lived was living off the money that he had raised. But then a wealthy family like um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Not every villager's death would merit visits from Jews from Jerusalem. That also, for Jesus, highlights the proximity to Jerusalem and the inherent danger for him in going. The point in all of this is to establish that Jesus has a special friendship uh, with this family, to see that the Scripture says specifically, if we are disciples who follow him, Jesus calls us his friends. 
And really the terrible question, but the, the, the question that is packed with all kinds of merit and blessing is do you know the friendship of God? I fear sometimes in our devotions, we're, we're checking off the box. You know, I spent time with God by opening his word, but I never really spent time with God. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm concerned that in our duty, our responsibility, we're not actually building a relationship. Like God, God is at an arm's distance and very formal, or we look at him as this guy who's just kind of looking down, checking every mark of ways that we don't obey, that we've not been a good boy. He's not Santa Claus. He's not making his list and checking it twice. And we forget that God's a God of joy who wants to be in a relationship with his people. And I fear that we substitute our discipleship checklists for a real friendship with God. Does he go throughout the day with you? Is he a constant presence? Um, trick question. Does he know everything that you've gotten into today? That's a trick question because, yes, he does. The question is, have you told him? Do you, do you hide things from God? Let me just suggest that's even dumber than hiding things from your parents, okay? Uh, like, you know, mom's got, if you parted the hair back there, there is some kind of eyeball back there because she sees it all. She knows when you're getting in the cookie jar. She knows when you're climbing on her spice rack. She knows when you're doing everything. Why would you hide things from, from God? Do you know what it means to have friendship with God? And listen, how audacious is that to say that the, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the redeemer who died and was crucified, wants to be our friend? Listen, that, that's too marvelous for me. I, I don't deserve friendship with God, yet if the incarnation and the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ teaches us anything, it's that God wants to be in relationship with His people. So are you. And for some of you today, if I can be as bold as possible, some of you need to repent of your checklists and turn to a real relationship, a real friendship with God, where you talk to Him like you talk to a friend. Jesus cares for us relationally. First part of his full service Savior. Number two, we get to depend upon Jesus as a confidant who understands our deepest emotions. Now, immediately, I lost 50% of the people in the room because all the men in the room go, I'm a man, I got no emotions. Yeah, I'm sure like in Gladiator when Russell Crowe died, there was at least a little bit of moisture there. You know, Rambo part 15, you know, um, whatever. You have emotions. You are just handicapped from experiencing them, okay? Right, ladies? Something like that. And so we're going to skip over a bit, of his, uh, a bit of his conversation because Martha is the first um, sister who runs to Jesus when she hears that he's there. We're going to skip over that and we're going to go to the conversation with Mary. So Jesus has a private conversation with Martha and it's a beautiful conversation, but it's also the crescendo. It's the high watermark. So we're going to leave that for point three. Jesus gets done with Martha, and then Martha goes back to Mary. Martha comes out immediately. Mary stays home to kind of play good host. Uh, all the mourners are at her home. And, and Martha walks up to Mary and, and, and whispers to her, tells her in secret, it says, Jesus is here, and he wants to meet with you. Why a secret? Don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. I think there's a couple things. Number one, because all the Jews from Jerusalem are there, I think Martha is perhaps wanting to protect Jesus' identity. 
that guy's in town, let's get him. You know, lynch mob forms really quick. I think there's some discretion on Martha's part where she is protecting uh, Jesus. I, I think maybe to protect Mary's privacy. Jesus wants to have a private conversation. And uh, if you've ever been to a funeral, funerals are, funerals are a time for socializing. Um, it's, it's not a party, but, you know, if you're Baptist, you end up with tons of food at your house, and everybody coming by just to check on you, just to check on you, just to love on you, hug on you a little bit. But when you get to the funeral, there's the receiving line, and you're saying the same thing over again. You know, yeah, yeah, she was great. She loved us well. Yeah, we miss her terribly. Yeah, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. And then that person moves on, and what do you do? You repeat the entire same conversation with the next person. Hey, man, we're so sorry. I know. I know. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. It's not a time for building a ton of relationships. It's not, it's not a deep time. You appreciate it, but it's kind of like, all right, take a number, next person, next person, next person. When there's people around, Jesus is not going to have the same kind of conversation with Mary as he would if he can do it privately. So I think maybe this is a secret So for, for privacy. I think also maybe Jesus is already close to the cemetery and he wants to be close to the cemetery. And he's like, hey, Mary, come on out. I got a little, I got a little show and tell that I want to do. And so why don't you leave the house, come to me, and, and we're going we're gonna to take care of something here. Well, we don't know. But, but uh, Mary comes out, and in verses 32 through 36, we, we see what happens. She gets up quickly, and all the Jews who are with her assume that she's going to the graveside. So they get up to go with her because they don't want her to be alone. They want to mourn, they want to mourn with her. In verses 32 through 36, we see the dialogue. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Mary shows up and immediately she bows at these feet that in the next chapter she would wash with her own tears. She bows at his feet and shows a, a, a deep sign of respect and she makes an incredible statement of faith. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. True? Oh yeah, Jesus got power. This is a statement of faith. Is it a mature statement of faith? No, it's not. Did Jesus need to be there to be able to have raised the person? So Mary believes, but she actually thinks that Jesus' power is accessed by proximity. Here's the challenge. No matter how mature you are in the faith, bottom floor, balcony, you don't even see your own blind spots. Jesus does not go, oh, Mary, Mary, Mary. I'm the Lord of the universe. I can do anything. There's no chiding. What does Jesus do? Jesus knows she's sorrowful. This is not the time for teaching. And there's no rebuke. Why? Because she's a friend. She needs a shoulder to cry on, not a lesson. And so Jesus, he sees Mary's weeping. He sees the weeping of the Jews. And says he's deeply moved and greatly troubled to the point that he, he, he wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Still working on Alan to get that one memorized. But... Uh, before the summer's over, we're going to knock it out, man. We're going to knock it out. I promise you, you're going to get it. Um, I think that was the first Bible verse I memorized because I got a pin for RAs if I memorized it. So I'm like, 
I got me my first verse down. They were all a lot longer after that one. Um, so what was Jesus feeling? The word for, for greatly moved, there's not a good translation for it. You want to know what the best translation is? This will bless your heart. When it says that Jesus was deeply moved, the, the best literal translation was he was snortingly indignant. <clears throat> I even, that hurt. <laughs> he snorted like a horse. would huff. And he's, he's angry. He's indignant. Well, what's he angry at? He's not angry at Mary. He's not angry at the Jews. It says he's troubled. The best, word for, best way to describe troubled, Jesus' emotional state, he was snortingly indignant, and he was troubled, meaning agitated to the point of disorganization. Okay? I'm OCD. Some of you are blessed with the same, same disease. I'm so OCD, I'm CDO. Got to get the letters right. Um, have you ever been so mad that you can't talk? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. You have, anybody have multiple kids? I do. I have to go through all my kids' names to get to the right one that I'm trying to call out. Go, 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 go on! What are you doing? Get out of that tree. You're gonna, don't run with scissors. You're going to poke your eye out. Don't do that. i got to call through all of them to get it because sometimes you just get so angry. It's not that you're disorganized, but it doesn't come out right. You're just frustrated that you're not organized the way that you are. So what's going on here? I think there's two things that explain Jesus' great emotion at this point. Number one, he is angry at sin. He's angry at sin. Sin has blinded so many of the people that he came to save. He, he is right next to, the, to, to Jews who are weeping over death, and they cannot see that the source of all life is right there in front of them. Lazarus' death is due to sin, not because Lazarus sinned, God, God whammied him. But we know that, that the wages of sin is Death. Death didn't exist before sin. So sin has ultimately brought death. It has blinded people. And yet Jesus has come in a veiled way at this point to destroy the works of the devil and even to conquer death. But nobody knows it yet because his cross work has not been completed. And Jesus is angry. He's thrown into a paroxysm of just a fit. Angry at death, angry at sin. But number two, is just empathy for his friends. Empathy for his friends. He's sad for the sisters. He's sad for Lazarus. Listen, we know that the soul doesn't hover around for three days. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. There's no intermediate state. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So where is Jesus bringing Lazarus back from? The Lord's presence. Oh, Lazarus, I am so sorry. And, and Jesus has extra reason to be sorry, too, because as soon as Lazarus gets resurrected, you read in chapter 12, the Jewish leaders get so ticked off that Jesus raised him up that they plan on not only murdering Jesus, but they're going to kill Lazarus again. They just better make sure they get the order right. If they kill Lazarus first and Jesus is still alive, Jesus can raise him back up again. I'm like, guys, make sure you're thinking through this, all right? You know, he, he already raised him once, raised him twice. And so Jesus has empathy for his friends. Sad for the sisters, sad for Lazarus. And it says that Jesus cries. He wept. It's a different verb than that, is used, that, that which is used for Jews and for Mary. They are weeping. Jesus cries. And when Jesus cries, these are not the tears of a professional mourner. There were 30 days of mourning mandated for a funeral. First week is bitter and, and turned up full volume. The next three weeks are a little more sedate. 
These are not the tears of a professional mourner. They're not simply the tears of sentimentality. These are the pure and holy tears of a loving and sympathizing high priest. Jesus cares for us emotionally. Wants to be in relationship with us, and he is not afraid of whatever garbage you got. You might be, which is why you come to church and you fake like everything's great. Jesus is not phased but whatever stuff you're dealing with. Third and finally, we trust Jesus as Savior because He provides for our deepest spiritual needs. This is great. We're looking at verses 21 through 27 specifically, and we see Martha's encounter with Mary. What Martha has to say is remarkably similar to what Mary says, except she goes even further. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, now this sounds almost identical to what Mary said, except Martha doesn't put a period there. There's a dot, dot, dot. She goes on in verse 27. Oh, let me find my place here. I'm sorry, verse 20. 20. Yeah, 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's amazing. Mary sounded fatalistic. Man, if you had been here on the third day, might have been able to pull him back up, but it's the fourth day. His soul's gone. I mean, not even a miracle will work here. Martha says, listen, I know it's four days. There's no rational reason for me to expect even superstition for me to believe that you can do anything. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you remarkable faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Uh, Listen, great Martha up. Martha always gets flack for the party in Luke 10 where Mary sits at Jesus' feet and Martha's concerned about all the domestic details. But here, Martha's faith proves to be a bit deeper than her sisters. She usually gets ragged on, but she makes it clear that she has an adamant faith in the resurrection and that even though popular culture would say this is impossible, she knows that Jesus can still do it. Jesus says, yeah, I know you believe in the resurrection. But even her faith is not fully clear because she sees it as an end-time destination. Jesus says, hey, listen, I don't want you to believe in an abstract resurrection. I want you to believe in an actual one. Do you believe this? Not like 20 years down the road. Do you believe this right now? I don't want it to be abstract. I want it to be actual. I don't want it to be end time. I want it to be right now. Oh, yes. I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the one that God is sending into the world. Jesus doesn't say that he will bring about or cause the resurrection. He says that I am. And he gives this incredible promise for he who believes. He says this, two things. I am the resurrection I am the life. And then everything else that Jesus says is related to one of those two things. He's the resurrection. So whoever believes in me, even though he dies, he'll live. He'll be resurrected. I am the life. So everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's wonderful. He says that death is not death. Not the death that he's referring to. He's talking about spiritual death. So you can die, still be fully alive. You can die and be resurrected. He is the resurrection and the life. And he says that all of this is for whoever believes in me. What an incredible offer. 
He says, whoever believes in me, whoever affirms what I say and believes my commands, believes that I'm the Son of God, believes that I am sinless, believes that I died for sins, believes that I am resurrected and who follows my commands to repent and follow. If we do this, he gives us a life that conquers death. Two incredible ways. There are all kinds of ways in scriptures that we could look at to see where Jesus says he has life, he gives life, he is the bread of life, he is life. And the question that comes down to us is the same question that came down to Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Oh yeah, I know there's going to be a resurrection. No, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Whoever uh, believes in me and lives will never die. Do you believe this? And if you do, the good news is this morning, you are alive. Apart from this, you may have a physical shell. You may have biological life, but you have no spiritual life apart from Christ. He's the only one that can give it. And if we are alive, what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing. But we're not alive the same way Jesus is alive. See, everything that exists today is completely dependent upon Jesus' life. He's the glue that holds the cosmos together. You are not. You want to you learn your place in the cosmos? <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. What do you know about your great, great, great grandfather? You want to know what you know about your great, great grandfather? Um, the law of averages says, maybe his name. You know what your great, great, great grandchildren are going to know about you? Zero. When you're dead, you are gone. And beyond the next generation, there may not be any memory of you whatsoever because when you die, life goes on. The sun rises, the bills come, the Lord knows, government's going to take their taxes. Life goes on. And yet everything about life is contingent upon Jesus. And he says, if you're in a relationship with me, you get my kind of life. That while your great, great, greats might not know who you are, If they believe, you'll spend eternity with them because where the Lord is, we will be as well. Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? And she responds with the perfect tense, "I, I have believed. I have believed. Something that she has done in the past that has continuing significance right now. Her faith is not a novelty. And yet Jesus here introduces and illumines the miracle before he even does it. In verses 39 through 44, he does it. Jesus demonstrates that faith in him isn't empty and isn't only for the future. It changes the here and now in verses 39 through 40. It says that Jesus gets to the tomb. And he says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, the one who has more faith, demonstrates that her faith isn't quite fully formed too. She just said, I believe you're the resurrection and the life. And Jesus says, fine, all right, good, take away the stone. Time for show and tell. You believe, let me demonstrate. Roll away the stone. Uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Anybody read King James? He stinketh. Anybody that has middle school boys can appreciate that verse. It's not just people who have been dead four days. It's boys that need lessons in personal hygiene. He stinketh. All right, is he the resurrection and the life? Or not, because a decomposing body is not not a challenge for the creator of the world. He says, open it up. And then it says, they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, 
thank you that you have heard me. He's just starting his prayer, and he's talking in past tense. Thank you that you have heard me. He's praying like he's already received the thing that he's asking for. Father, thank you that you have heard me. But I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said those things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! I love the way it says, in the Greek, it says, sounds like he's calling a dog. Here! Outside! There's no incantation. There's no ooga booga. He just says, here. And when the omnipotent creator speaks, even dead bodies are animated. They obey. Foreshadowing Jesus' own death and resurrection, Lazarus comes back alive. Jesus says he was loud, not because Lazarus was hard of hearing, but because other people who were there needed to hear what he said so that they could have the opportunity to believe. John records the results. Verse 45 says this, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Many. Like, this is not a small victory. I mean, number one, Mary and Martha are ecstatic because Jesus has proved himself to, get this, he has proven himself to be far more wonderful than they already thought he was. If you have been a Christian for, let me say, more than five years, you know what the danger is for you? You've got Jesus figured out. And you have lost every shred of wonder if there ever was any. Christian faith for you is boring. It's a tradition. It's a Sunday morning routine. Oh, let me just say, I would like for you to meet my Jesus. Far. Far. More wonderful than you can imagine. They're ecstatic. And in addition to Lazarus' restoration, as many new brothers and sisters, pilgrims on the pathway to the kingdom of God. This is an awesome story. If you go just a few more verses, verses 52 and 53. So from that day on, the Jewish leaders made plans to put Jesus to death. You're going to come in my backyard, unofficial rabbi who hasn't been to the right schools. We don't even know about your parentage. You, 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 you were born under illegitimate circumstances, and you're going to say you're going to teach us, and you're going to come into our backyard without our permission and, and raise someone from the dead on your own authority? Yeah, pretty much. And this takes us back to that first point. Jesus cared about the relationship that he had with his friends so much that he came upon the pain of death to do something for them that no one else could do. Jesus had a real relationship that cared about the emotional baggage that they were dealing with in life. And he came because he said, listen, this is the really small gift. Lazarus is the stocking stuffer for the Christmas gift that I'm about to give you by dying on a cross. And not just giving Lazarus life, but giving life to everyone who believes in my name. It says that many believed. And they too found Jesus to be far more wonderful than even their highest thoughts had thought. And yet some, it calcified their hearts and made them more opposed that they began planning his very execution. The man who came to die for others. 
who would give his life to give a life that would never end. And so today, on this day, this Memorial Day, I guess the question is, on this Lord's Day, what are you memorializing? Simply a history lesson? Flanders Fields? D-Day? What your great-grandfather did? It's worth memorializing. Those are real sacrifices. We are grateful for what mere humans did to sacrifice their life for us. We recognize the men and women who have paid the ultimate price to give us political rights and political freedoms that we can enjoy that very few people in the world enjoy today. But how much more essential is it for us to recognize the one who died to give us not just the freedom to buy groceries, the freedom to go to Georgia, the freedom to cross state lines, the freedom to own things and not have it taken by the government, but the one who died to provide our spiritual freedom and our spiritual life. Today, there is no better way for you to properly memorialize this weekend than not just remembering the people who have died for your physical life, but coming into a relationship with God who created you and wants to redeem you. Father, I ask that you add the convicting power of your spirit to these words, that you use the idiosyncrasies that I don't even realize that I have and the inadequacies of my own speech and learning to just encourage people today to substitute their checklist for a real relationship with you. For them to experience a vitality that only comes from being in a relationship with you. To know a joy and a purpose in life that only comes from being in a real relationship with you. Father, forgive us for the cheap substitutes that we make. Today, may you in our hearts lift Christ high that we may see him and find life in his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.